kind of subtitled my message, What's in a Name? And, or you might even put in parentheses, does identification really matter? And uh, so I knew the reference to the scripture. It's found in Kings and Chronicles both. And so I went to 1 Kings and I chose this scripture to start with. It's uh, 1 Kings 12, 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. Well, this kind of led me to this idea of what's in a name. I think it's really important when you're, whether it's just your daily Bible reading or whether it's Bible study or whatever, to take a little bit of extra time and try to identify who this person is that it's speaking of yes. and who this person is that's doing the speaking or the writing. And for me, it really helps, like for instance, in, in our Bible reading plan, I took notice of the fact that all year we've been reading, every day, and it was October 1st that we turned the page into the New Testament. That ought to tell you something, you New Testament Christian you. This idea that the New Testament is a third of the Word is not true. It's more like about 15%. And it's none less important, and it's none less viable. It's just as truthful as any other part of the book. But what other book or story or movie or documentary could you set in on the last 15% and fully get the picture? Amen. You see, it's, it, it can't be done. So um, how many of y'all have read A Pilgrim's Progress. <coughs> I, I figured as much. It's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, do it. <coughs> um, it's an allegory. <coughs> I didn't even know what an allegory was when I started reading it. I don't know that I'd ever heard the word. And I'm not sure that even this moment that I could give you a definitive definition of what allegory is. All I know is, is that the main character in the book's name is Christian. And he's on a pilgrimage to the celestial city, just like you are. Just like you, just like each one of us. So John Bunyan, it's, he's, he, from my perspective, is an easy man to really appreciate. Amen. He was a full-on man. He was a man who went through the fire. So he was a Puritan, which... Uh, <coughs> would have meant he was a nonconformist. He was not licensed to preach by the official state religion. He was just a man that was called to preach, and he, by gads, went out and did it. They arrested him, and he spent 12 years in the prison. And while he was there, he put his time to good use, and he wrote a couple books. The first book that he wrote was Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he started A Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail. Well, he writes this wonderful narrative about a man named Christian. One of the things about this book that is so wonderful is you don't have to guess anything about the main characters because they are named exactly who they are. So, for instance, on his trek, he meets Mr. Greatheart, an evangelist. Uh, not, I don't mean he's an evangelist. I mean he meets a man named Evangelist. He meets a man named Obstinate. 
He meets pliable. He meets help. He will, meets worldly wise man. He meets formalist. He meets hypocrisy and various other people. Well, that's really good because there you've got proper identification. You know who the story's about. And I just thought it was the most wonderful thing. And I don't, I don't toss that out easily because I am a reader and I have read many good books. I've read some books that too were kind of a waste of time, but I have read many, many good books and I don't think I've ever read a book outside of the Word of God that was, that was as good or as well-written or as touching for me. And it, it was a book that really did kind of change my life. And this book was written in the 1600s. We don't know when John Bunyan was born, but we know that he was baptized on the 30th of November in 1628. And he died in August of 1688. Now, after he got out of prison, he went right back to the same street corner and started preaching again. And they threw him in the pokey. Well, while he was there, and I think the second time was only about six months, but while he was there, he wrote a sequel to A Pilgrim's Progress. It's also a wonderful book. This is about the man Christian's wife and children on their trek to the celestial city. And uh, it's just, it's a wonderful story. But the fact that each person is named who they are cuts right to the chase. And I'll tell you, if you, you probably all know this, but all of these names right in here, they all have meanings too. But you're going to miss it if you don't root it out, if you don't take a few minutes and look these people up. Now, some of them are... a little bit more obvious in their name. Like for instance, in that first scripture that I read, there are a number of people and peoples that are identified in there. We have Israel, David, Jesse, and there's a reference to the king. Well, what king is that? If you go backwards into 1 Kings, into the first few verses of chapter 12, it tells you that that king that, that this is in reference to is Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So if we'll take just a minute to find out what's in a name, this might be of some benefit. And Israel is the first proper noun that I have listed here. And in Strong's, it's number 3478. Now let me say something about Strong's and Thayer and Halley and all the rest of them they do not have the final word. Amen. They do not have the final word. And the, uh, Strong's is a good example. You look at Strong's of 1890 and you look at Strong's of today, yes, it's not the same book. Would you say that that's because he's moving closer to the truth? Does, is that the way of things? Or could it be that he's moving more towards our taste buds and making things more palatable? So if the story is changing a long time, then is it truth? It's not absolute truth. So, so I'm not telling you to ignore Strong's and Thayer and these other resources and even some commentaries, which I really seldom read because most of them are products of denominational teaching. And, and it's going to be laced in there, and you're not going to be able to necessarily determine the difference between the two. So anyway, Israel is number 3478 in Strong's Concordance. And it, according to Strong's, it means God prevails. Amen. Well, we know it has something to do with God because the word L is in the name. Amen. You should look for that. If you're reading a story and Ahijah's name comes up, and you see that J-A-H, that should ring a bell with you because that is the name of Jehovah. So it helps us identify who it is that we're talking about. 
Now, even though Rehoboam wasn't mentioned specifically by name in that verse, I thought it was worthwhile to take a look at, especially when you see what his name means in the literal English. Rehoboam is number 559. And his name, according to Strong's, means to say, to speak, to utter, to act proudly. Now, was Rehoboam a proud man? Did he not go to elders that had counseled his father and get good advice? And then he went to his contemporaries, the young men, the ones he'd been kicking around with for a long time. They gave him some very bad advice, but they fed his ego. Listen, you don't have to take this off of them. You're the king. You just tell them how it's going to be. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm the king. I'm calling the shots. And uh, I don't mean to suggest that Rehoboam caused this event to happen because this event was of God. And the story, we're going to work our way backwards and we're going to find out that this is already mentioned when the children, when the Hebrew children are in Egypt. So uh, we look at David, David's number 1138, and it really isn't much help. It just simply said king of Israel, like, like there was anybody that didn't know that. And you see Jesse's name is number 3448, and his name means I possess. I'm not sure there's a lot of help there, but I bet you there's some significance there, but I don't know it. I, all I can say is, is this event in time didn't just happen to happen. Right? Because um, the story goes way back and the story continues way forward. And it is an ongoing tapestry. There is a, you might say, a scarlet thread that runs all the way through that tapestry. And if you were to interrupt that tapestry in any way, the pieces will not go back together. There would be a hole. Right? I don't care how straight you cut the line and how straight you cut the line when you bring those two together, something missing. So, we're, and we're going to take a look backwards and we're going to take a look forward. And I'm going to try to help explain my position on why names are significant, why they're important. Um, so Rehoboam decides he's going to go after the northern tribes and he's going to force them back into the Union, just like Lincoln. Except what Lincoln did is he did not restore the Union. He destroyed the Union. Amen. Because there was in our founding fathers and the framers there was a little bit of knowledge that they had. They understood that the balance of power in the American government never was judicial, legislative, administrative. They're all playing for the same team. They all got the same boss. They're all working eventually towards the same, the same end. But when you have a state that is on par that the federal government can't run roughshod over, they have to work things out. So the federal government might tell the state of Tennessee, listen, you're going to pass that seatbelt law or we're not going to send you any highway money. And the governor of Tennessee's responsibility at that point is to say, listen, Jack, you got it right backwards. You don't, you don't tame your tone with me a little bit and we won't send you any highway money. Well, now we have an impasse that they have to get together on. So they sit down and they hash it out. That, I believe, was the true balance of power in the government. And I believe that, that uh, our framers and the founding fathers, I believe that, that they understood that, that, that there would be a balance there that would force them to work things out. So um, anyway, just a little bit of politics there. Um, 
Thus saith the Lord, ye shall not go up nor fight against your brethren. Return every man to his house, for this thing is done of me. And they obeyed the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. Well, there's another proper noun. Jeroboam uh, in Strong's is number 3379. And the literal English meaning of his name is the people will contend. Now, how is it that his parents, when they named him, knew all of this and the role that Jeroboam was going to play? How, how is it? Who named, who named him that? Well, I say that that is part of the ongoing divine providential hand of God. Yes. And if you look up a name and you see some indication as to who you're looking at, it can be a help in understanding the ongoing story. But this isn't the beginning of the story either, so we, we're going to back up some more. In 1 Kings 11, 1, there's a reference here to Solomon. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely, for surely, they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clave unto these in love. So if you try to speak to your uh, church-going neighbor down the street about this, they're going to say, oh, it wasn't his relationship with these strange women. It was the fact that he turned his hearts to other gods. What did God say? For surely, right? It's not they might cause you to do that. They will cause you to do that. This is a certainty. Has anything changed? Really? Does it ever change? So we look at Solomon's name in Strong's, and it's number 8010, and his name means peace. Well, that might be kind of an odd way to look at Solomon, except if you know the story, Solomon in his reign had peace. He had peace on all sides. And his kingdom was very, uh, very profitable. He, his reputation went worldwide. He, uh, he had peace in his kingdom. Peace and I would say true prosperity our hand in glove. It, in our modern government, they look for opportunities to disrupt the peace for prosperity. There are a few people, a few entities, a few peoples who benefit greatly during times of war. After all, they got all this money invested in, these, in the war machine, and you can't make any money unless the government's using that stuff up so you can resupply them. So um, anyway, peace is uh, the, what I would say is probably the literal translation of the name Solomon. Uh, when you look up Moabites, number 4125 and his name means of his father what father well of course you know the story but doesn't that at the very least reinforce the story I think you have the Ammonites which we know that the Ammon was the the product of the same uh, unlawful act that Moab was. 
Now his name, according to Strong's, means tribal. And that doesn't give me a lot of, lot of insight. But knowing the story, the backstory, um, in this case, you have properly identified. Uh, Edomites really gets almost, there's not a simple definitive answer under Edomites, but we know who the Edomites are. We know they're the, the offspring of Esau, and we know how they got to be the offspring of Esau, and we know that uh, Esau had the same problem Solomon did because he married into a cursed people, Amen. right? So their offspring is cursed. Well, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound fair. And I'll tell you, I've heard Arnold Murray a hundred times say, God is always fair. And I say, absolutely not. Yeah. I'll tell you what my mother used to say. I'd say, Mama, that's not fair. And she'd say, son, you ain't at the fair. <laughs> son, you ain't at the fair. <laughs> then the Hittites are... Uh, mentioned in there too, they're the sons of Heth. And Heth was maybe the second son of Canaan. So we know who we're dealing with. We've identified him properly. But his, his literal English translation of that name is terror. And because Heth was from a place and a people that Israel was instructed to destroy and didn't, he was a terror to Israel, right? So just a little bit of backstory there. Now in 2 Kings 11, verse 11, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. And of course, we know that servant was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was uh, part of Solomon's administration. Solomon had taken notice of him. He was a man of valor. He was industrious, the kind of young man that you would gravitate towards, that you'd wanna, wanna see do well. And so Solomon gives him a little authority by putting him over the house of Joseph. Uh, in second, in First Kings, uh, chapter eleven, verse twelve, the, the this is the next scripture, the next in that in that passage. Notwithstanding, in thy days, I will not do it for David, thy father's sake but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Well, how did God even know he was going to have a son? I mean, after all, God's caught off guard all the time. That's why he had to go to plan B and welcome the Gentiles, right? Because God was caught off guard when the Jews didn't accept Christ. And let's go on the record. They didn't just not accept Christ. They hate his guts and they hate your guts. They hate him. And when you see the vile things that they write about him, uh, you get in the flesh just like me and Ari. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, uh, and So here's a little bit of Jeroboam's backstory. And uh, still in chapter 11, verse 29. And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, remember what I just said about J-A-H? The prophet Ahijah, I say Shilonite because I used to say Shilonite until I looked it up. And it says he was from Shiloh. Well, why wouldn't he be a Shilonite then? So, uh, and it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah 
the Shilonite, found him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. Now, I, I like to clarify things for myself if I can, and I'm still not clear on whether Ahijah or whether Jeroboam has the new garment. I, my, my reasoning, I believe, is Jeroboam was the one with the new garment because it says in the next verse, and Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him. Well, if he was wearing it, you don't catch the garment on yourself, right? You take a, lay hold on somebody by grabbing their, their cloak. So, and Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in 12 pieces. And I know everybody here is well familiar with that story. And he said to Jeroboam, take thee 10 pieces for thus saith the Lord. Now that's, uh, that's pretty strong stuff because if God hadn't given Jeroboam the 10 tribes, then the people of Israel would have been lawfully bound to stone Ahijah. You see, be careful about speaking for the Lord. Be careful when you speak about a faithful man of God. You hear somebody say something, you don't have to chime in. And that is one thing that we have in our message is we have men that have been through the fire and they're still fearlessly standing up there and yes, telling the story. And that courage that they have just adheres me to them. Amen. There's a little more to the story here of Jeroboam. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. I've already referred to this, but I want to read this scripture. And Solomon seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge of the house of Joseph. If we back up just a little bit more to verse 26, this is a little bit challenging for me to... to uh, do my work in this verse, but I'm going to give it my best. And Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, an Ephrathite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, Z-E-R-U-A-H, Zeruah. That's probably not a good pronunciation, but it's the best I can do. So, Nabat is number 5028, and his name means aspect. That doesn't tell me anything. But it does identify him as an Ephraimite. Well, this is, this is a little bit uh, conflicting for me, and I'll, I'll explain to you why. We know that an Ephrathite is someone that, a, that resides in Bethlehem. So we have an Ephraimite living in Bethlehem. Well, that's not too conflicting to me in the least, but it says in the script that he's of Zerida. Zerida, 68-68, means fortress. It's in a town in Manasseh. So it, does he reside in Bethlehem or does he reside in Manasseh? Then... We need to identify Zeruah, his mother, Jeroboam's mother. Her number is number 6871. And you'll have to just give me a little license here, but the literal English version of her name means full-breasted. Well, the story the direction that we're going. We're following the tapestry backwards a little bit in time. It continues on. This is where I said that it's even mentioned 
of in Egypt. So Ezekiel 23, 1 through 4, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, obviously sisters, and they committed whoredoms in Egypt. They committed whoredoms in their youth. There were their breasts, breasts pressed, and there they bruised the teats of their virginity. And the names of them were Ahola, the elder, and Ahalaba, her sister. And they were mine, and they bear sons and daughters. Thus were their names. Samaria is Ahola. And Jerusalem, Ahalaba. Well, why would my mind go back to this story? Well, in a past uh, Bible study. I had taken the time to identify Ahola and Ahalaba and see what their names meant. Ahala, her name is number 170 in Strong's, and it says she has her own tent. Clearly, she's a feminist and she don't need no man. There you go. Right? And Ahalaba. Her name, 172, means the tent is in her. Well, where was the tent? A tent and tabernacle, you know, it just depends on the ongoing story, but I believe they're the same word. And about 400 times it's uh, translated as tent, and 411 dozen times it's translated as tabernacle. So the tent is in her. Well, the script just told us that she's Jerusalem, and we know that's where the tabernacle was, you see. But no, Ahola, she's got to be uh, a free woman, right? She's got to get out there and do her own thing and have her own way. And yet, all of these, keep in mind, all of this continuing tapestry, we follow that thread, and all the way from back then up to the time that, that Israel splits the sheets and heads for the north country, all of this is divinely providential. The hand of God is working continuously. Am I correct on that, would you say? Yeah. So... What about today? Has there ever been a time since the beginning all the way through to today that God dozed off or wasn't paying attention or lost interest in His people? Didn't we see the sun this morning? Didn't we see the moon last night? We know that's impossible. It's just not. It's not. You've got to make the, the Scriptures harmonize. And so we know that God's hand has been in this from the beginning all the way through. I would go so far as to say that when God said, let there be light, He already, this whole story was already at work, already at play. So, I don't know if you're going to catch the, the connection here right off, but I think you will before I get done. I, I can see why the world would do it. I don't understand why the modern church would do it. I don't understand why they would both want to taint Jesus Christ. Amen. And they do by suggesting that God wasn't directing this whole story the whole time. And what I'm getting around to here is that Jesus Christ is the spotless Lamb of God. Is He not? One spot, one spot he doesn't qualify. 
He's the spotless Lamb of God. So didn't he, didn't he teach of himself from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms? And it explained exactly who he was. So if, if in Christ's, the ongoing story of Jesus Christ anywhere, if the law had been broken, he clearly wouldn't be the one. And that kind of brings up a little, it's a little bit of a offshoot on that, but I think it's worth mentioning how that uh, somehow people have it in their heads that God, he was that mean old God dealing with the Jews, and Jesus, he's the loving God, and he's dealing with us, with the Gentiles. Well, who caused the flood? Who made the flood happen? Be careful how you answer. If you deny that Jesus didn't cause the flood, he's not God. Yep. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. Who caused the flood? Jesus. Yep. He is the great I am and never was a time when he wasn't the great I am. Amen. Right? Never was a time. Um, so in Luke 24, 44, this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So all things must be fulfilled. That means every T is crossed, Every I is dotted. There's a period here where it's supposed to be this next word letter, the next word is capitalized, and so on, right? I mean, maybe I'm just a legalist, but when it says to me that all things must be fulfilled, I think that every prophecy that was, that was uh, given to us by a prophet absolutely fully had to completely come about. I mean, uh, this morning, it was said that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If he had been born somewhere other than Bethlehem, would he be the Christ? How could he? You see what I mean? So the, it's not just, well, how can I put this? As the story unfolds, even though there may be times or places where you're not exactly sure what's going on, if you read the story all the way to the end, it will become clear to you. The answer will become clear to you. And I'm, I'm building up to something here. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 3, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest and to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, uh, the Canaanites, the Parasites, uh, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. in Deuteronomy 23 and 3. No Ammonite, nor Moabite, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to their 10th generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. And it's been pointed out to me, yeah, but it says, brother, 10 generations. Yeah, but just read on. <laughs> so, so how is it that these people, and listen, they don't just cast dispersions on Christ. They love it. I'm talking about people that are professing Christians. They love, to, they love to taint his reputation. Do they not say, oh yeah, when Jesus was on earth, he was hanging out with the, the prostitutes and the drunks. He'd be down here at the tavern with us. He hated religious people. Have you never heard something like that? Yeah. Who were those drunks and prostitutes that he hung out with? Sinners. Pardon? Sinners. Right. And they weren't just nondescript sinners. No. Clearly, they were some of our 
people that we Amen. might not like to admit to, yeah. right? So you can understand why the world would do it, but why would the 501c3 church want to taint Christ? You see, it wasn't just the law that was fulfilled. It wasn't just the prophecies that were fulfilled. But is not Jesus' genealogy listed in the Bible? Absolutely. Right. If one of those was removed, it would change the whole narrative. Right? So by trying to claim, they love to claim that David, that uh, Ruth was a Moabite, and that would make David a Moabite, but further than that, that would make Boaz a Canaanite. So you've got a marriage between a Moabite and a Canaanite, and there a little four generations later becomes the king of Israel. So when I said the story will tell you what you need to know, it'll tell you the truth. Was David kicked out of the assembly? Was he shunned by the congregation? Because if he had been a Canaanite Moabite, he wouldn't have been welcome in the assembly, right? So the story itself tells us what we need to know. Now, I've, at various times, I have looked into this idea about um, Ruth being a Moabitess, and she is identified as a Moabitess in the, in the scriptures. Um, but there have been, that has been taught so many times very wonderfully. You remember uh, Alan Campbell? Yes. He had a great message on that. It's very good. So here we have a scripture in the law that tells us that, that uh, Moab just ain't welcome. And yet David's in the assembly. And keeping in mind that this is all in Jesus' genealogy. Was he a Moabite and a Canaanite? Was he a hybrid? See, it's right, but why do they love... They, they, don't, just, they don't just read that and try to take a literal interpretation of it, they love to say that Christ had these other people in his, in his line. That's the only thing they focus on. They love it. Yeah. Listen, it would absolutely destroy me if it were true. So, if we, we can take a look at this uh, business of the Canaanite and the Moabite in the woodpile. If, if you want to give me just a minute here. So the law says in Deuteronomy 7, 3, Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter nor thy, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto the, their, his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. So we'll start with Rahab. Is Rahab this woman that married Salmon, that beget Boaz, that beget Obed, that beget Jesse, that beget David? Is Rahab the mother of David, the king of Israel, back four generations? Can it be? Well, if we take a look, and, and here again, this is just... This is just my reasoning, and I definitely will take correction on this if I'm wrong. But it's generally regarded that the Battle of Jericho took place around 1476 to 1500 B.C. And it's also pretty well established that David was of 1000 B.C. That's a 500-year period to get four generations. Something ain't right here. You know, if you take... Like, for instance, sort of the typical 20-year between father and son, give or take, in these four generations. Let's see, we have Boaz. That's one from Salmon. Then we have Obed. That's two. 
who beget Jesse, that's three, who beget David, that's four. Okay, David didn't come about 20 years after Jesse. He was number eight. So we'll just give him 40 years, yeah. right? A lot of 40-year-old fathers in here still having babies, right? So, and, and up. So we have 20, 40, 80 years or so to fit into a 500-year span of time. That, by my way of thinking, even if you go very liberal on the, the dates and the date line and all that, Rahab would be like 400 years old when she married Salmon. I don't believe it's the same one, but never mind what I believe. The evidence is in the ongoing story because David was not kicked out of the assembly. You see, that's, that's our evidence. So if we take a look at Ruth, could Ruth really have been a Moabite? And, and Boaz been her kinsman redeemer? His, that type of Christ, right? I mean, does not the story, like the tapestry, fit together very neatly all the way through? It's a consistent, ongoing, never-changing story. And so, uh, w by the way, when you look up Moabitus in Strong's, and I have it here in my notes if I can find it, it's number 4125, and listen to what even Strong's has to say here. It says, a citizen of Moab. Well, it's a perfect, perfectly good explanation. It gives you a, another definition, an inhabitant of the land of Moab. You see? So why would your mind naturally go to an area that would be suspect at best and not follow the more logical, reasonable explanation that sticks with the ongoing story. So, um, and that, that reasoning I would apply whether it be Rahab, who is mentioned as Rachab or Rachab in the, in the King James. Why, why, I, it, it, I think the same logic applies to either one. I think that names are significant, and I think that proper identification is critical. It's important. It could also be worded, does identity matter? Of course it does. And, and I know that there are some people in this message that really shy away from using the word identity, but I ain't scared. It don't, it don't intimidate me in the least. Pastor, I don't know how much time I'm supposed to go on. I figured that since I was the only one speaking this morning, you just... <laughs> Whenever you want to stop. Okay. So, um, I like what David had to say about about uh, in Psalms 61, 4. He said, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, or the covert of thy wings. So he, uh, he has gone on record. He is heading for the Lord's tent, and he is going to stay there forever. And... I pray that each one of us will do the same. Now, I have one more little observation here, and it's also been a little bit of an ongoing conversation. Nick and I had a little bit of this conversation, and Kathy and I have too, in that um, don't fail to take notice of the English word just because it's not the 
original translation. It's there for a reason, is it not? So, I mean, we're all English-speaking people, and it was there for our benefit. The scriptures tell us that, that the whole book is there for our benefit. So I, I'm kind of a word person. You may not be able to tell it from, from my hayseed style of speech, but um, if you take two English words and you stick them together, does it change the nature of either word? Like snowshoe. It, it doesn't change the word snow and it doesn't change the word shoe to mean something else. And I got a really good uh, illustration from something that Anna said a few weeks ago at Pastor Ramsey's. When she was talking, she was talking about disease, except she didn't call it disease. She called it dis-ease. Right now, I realized that, that uh, somehow or another that that's probably been floating around for generations and I just missed it. But it really helped me because I've been thinking about this word generations. Okay, what do you see there? Do you see a root word, genes? Mm -hmm. And most people do when I ask them that. What I see is I see two words. I see the word gene and I see the word ration. Right? So when you're reading about Jesus' gene ration, yes. do you think that he was given something that would undo his divinity? No. Of course not his deity. So anyway, again, about the word generations, there's a number of things here that someone may have a, a better take on, but... The word generation, to me, when I see that, my mind goes to gene ration. Are you not a product of your gene ration? Were those genes not rationed to you? Did you have a say in who your parents were and their parents and their parents? No. Which is evidence right there of God's grace. Yes. His love for His people.